Father, I thank you for this chance to once again open your word, and I thank you for the fact that I'm very excited about what you're going to show us tonight, and as I've been doing this study, the things you've been showing me, Lord, I, uh, I just simply just, again, just take the time to rest in you tonight, to rest in the fact that you are going to open our ears and our eyes, and help us to see you afresh and anew, and may we be encouraged and challenged at the same time by these messages to the churches. And Lord, may we thank, thank first we want to just thank you for the fact that uh, your word is alive in such a way that we're not studying for historical purposes just to find out what happened back then. We're studying to have you speak because we believe you're going to speak to us as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, I have to say, this is was this red or green when I did it? It's supposed to be red. It's supposed to be red, then we're good. All right. We're in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Uh, Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Now, what I want to do to get started off here in this message to the church here in Smyrna is look at how Jesus describes himself to this church. Because you're going to see this in each of these churches. He, he describes himself to them in a certain way. But it's interesting. Uh, if you go back to Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, listen to what Jesus says. Uh, John says, When I saw him, I saw Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead, and then he placed his right hand on me, and he said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death in Hades. Now when he gives this message to the church in Smyrna, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, once again, just like he did in verse 17, and then who, he describes himself as the one who died, and he came to life again, and which is once again how he described himself in verse 18 over there. I'm the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. Now, it's very important that you grasp this because Jesus is giving a message to the people in this church and he had already described himself to John in this way, but now to this church he's describing himself to them in this way. And what I want to just kind of throw out to you is what was going on in the church in Smyrna at that time. Uh, the Christians were being persecuted severely in this city. Uh, one of the things was... Um, you ever heard of bounty hunters? You know what bounty hunters do? They go looking for the people uh, that are running from the law or whatever, and they gather them up, and that's how they make their money? Well, actually, a form of bounty hunting got started back in this time period in this area. What would happen was there were people that were doing things that were illegal, and the law system was set up such that whoever could prove it were the ones or, or, or per- prosecute them. That they got their money by gathering the spoils of whoever was convicted. Okay, So let's just say, I, I, I think Becky's got some stuff that I, I would like. I would try to find something she was doing wrong, prove it in a court of law that she was doing it wrong, and then I got to keep, when she was put in prison, I got to keep her stuff. And so this is one of the ways that they were kind of persecuting people, is the Jews, hating the Christians started to go out after Christians. And the simple thing was, once a year, everybody had to come, put a little bit of incense on this altar, say the statement, Caesar is, is, is God or Caesar's Lord. 
And Christians wouldn't do it, of course, because there's only one God and one Lord, and that's Jesus. And so, all of a sudden, people started to realize, man, there's a way to make some money here. i got these Christians I know that won't do it. If I can just take them to court, prove that they're not doing it, they get thrown in prison, and whoever did the prosecuting, if you will, or the finding it out, got their stuff. So now, when you understand what's going on, some of them are being put in prison because of this. Others are actually being put to death uh, in the, uh, the, the arena by lions or by burning at the stake. Some of you might have heard of a man named Polycarp, an early church father. He was actually burned at the stake in Smyrna. And so now with that in mind, what, what's going on? With people trying to just say, well, look what they're doing wrong. They're not uh, you know, appealing to Caesar or saying Caesar's Lord. They were being put in prison for it. They were losing all of their possessions. Now listen to what it says again. These are the words of him who was first and last, who died and he came to life again. I know your afflictions yet your po- and your poverty, yet you're rich. I know the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not, but are of synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I'll tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Doesn't that make a whole lot more sense now all of a sudden? You realize he's dealing with what was really going on. Some of them were losing their possessions. They were poor. Some of them were being put in prison. Some were even put in, being put to death because, because of what was going on in Smyrna. But why then is Jesus' comfort, or, or Jesus' words to them and how he described himself, why is that comfort to them? When he says to them at the beginning, I am the first and the last and the one who died and came to life again. Why is that a comfort to them? Uh, okay, they didn't come back to have nothing. But keep going. You were starting to say? He was showing him that he was Jesus. He's definitely, he's, he's identifying himself, the first and the last, the one who died and came back to life. What is, some of, what is something they were, they were dealing with? What was something happening to them? Definitely. They're being put to death. And Jesus comes and says, Happened to me too. Been there, done that. Been there, done that, in a sense. Yes. Happened to me too, and I'm back to life, and the same thing will happen to you. And so this is what they're, 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 he's telling them. He said, look, they're suffering the loss of their possessions. They're being killed in the, in the arenas by the wild animals and burning at the stake. Jesus was, in, um, sorry, the Jews were instrumental in all of these things. And his encouragement to them is, it happened to me, and even if it happens to you, I'm back to life. You'll be back to life. Uh, put a bookmark here and go to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, look at verses 12 through 22. <clears throat> I want to just take a second to encourage you with the fact that there is a resurrection from the dead. This life is not all there is. Thank God. Yeah, no kidding, thank God. There, there's actually, there were those back in the time of Paul who were teaching that there was no resurrection from the dead. As you know, in Jesus' day, the Sadducees uh, believed that there was no resurrection of the dead. Pharisees believed that there was. Sadducees didn't. But in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 and following, this is what it says, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead. But He did not raise Him if, the, in fact, the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. 
then those who have fa- also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If for this life we have, if sorry, only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam we all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own time, or own turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. And here it says Jesus is described as the first fruits from among the dead. What does the first fruit represent? It represents the whole batch, doesn't it? You know, the, the first fruits was representative of the whole batch. If the first fruits is holy, the whole batch is holy, is what the Bible talks about. Jesus was the first fruits from among the dead, first one to rise from the dead by his own power. He is the first fruits. And all of us who are in Christ are going to live again. So he said, Some of you may put in prison, some of you are going to suffer even to the point of death. But don't worry about it. Don't worry about that. Don't let that bother you. It's interesting, though, in this passage here in 1 Corinthians, as we were just reading it, look at uh, um, verse 19. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're to be pitied more than all men. Do you know what's sad is going on in churches today? There are people out there that even have books that say, Your Best Life Now. And there's a lot of churches out there that are teaching that our relationship with Christ is going to give us the good life here. And if you would just take a hold of everything that's yours in Jesus, you can have a good life here. Folks, listen to me. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible does not teach that at all. The Bible says, Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If they tried to kill me, they're going to try to kill you. In this life, you will have trouble. You'll have tribulations. But take heart. I've overcome the world. Men and women of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, the Bible describes them as the world was not worthy of them. Lived in rocks and caves and hid. Some were cut in two. Nowhere does the Bible teach that if I'm taking a hold of everything that I have in Jesus, I can have a great life now. That's not what the Bible teaches. And actually, Paul said here, if only in this life we hope in Christ, if that's what it's all about, this life, we're to be pitied more than all men. You got jipped, if that's all it is. But actually, if the book of Hebrew, in the book of Hebrews, what happened? They were described as they were looking toward a city whose builder and foundations were not done by men. It's God's place. And so I just want to encourage you, one, if you're having it rough, don't feel like you're doing something wrong. Doesn't that happen in our brains, though, sometimes? If not all the time? A financial setback or a job loss or a sickness, our first thought is... What did I do wrong? Because we, we've been taught, here in America especially, that if you're living for God, you'll be blessed. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible said He'll meet your needs. The Bible said He won't, he won't forsake you. The Bible said He'll take you through stuff. But He never promises that everything's going to be rosy. No, I promise the opposite. In this life, you will have trouble. Exactly. Exactly. But let's be honest. I'm just as guilty as everybody else. When something bad happens or something I'm not comfortable with or something I don't like, my first thought is, what did I do wrong? How can I fix it? Or what can I? Have, what do I have to do to get God to bless me again? Because He's not blessing me right now. Spurgeon was just the opposite. He was uh, riding on his circuit and uh, felt that he was doing something wrong because he had been persecuted that day. And <laughs> some kids 
hiding behind the hedge, threw a rock at him, knocked him off his horse, and he got on his knees and said, thank you, God, I know I'm still close to you. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. He, he definitely, Spurgeon definitely didn't have the theology that we have today in the church. So let me encourage you with that. And secondly, let me also tell you, let that be a warning to you wherever you go to church. If their preaching is more focused on the good life now, that's bad teaching. That's not what the Bible teaches. If they're focusing on obedience to Christ, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and the world to come, and the life to come, that's good preaching. That's good teaching. So if they're teaching how if you walk with the Lord, you can have it now, don't listen to that kind of teaching. Yeah. Do you think it's wrong for us to at least stop and say, okay, Lord, I believe I've been walking in obedience. If I'm not, show me. There's nothing wrong with doing what I call a sin checklist. There's nothing wrong with that. So don't 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 hear me and say that you know it might not never be something that you've done. Yet at the same time, in your relationship with the Lord, I believe that before He has to take your job away, He's He's been talking to you. You understand? That's not how your heavenly Father speaks first. In the same way, when you raised your kids, you would say, "Hey," and if they didn't listen, you might say, "Hey." And if they didn't listen, you might say, hey! But eventually, you might have to take away the car keys or whatever. You understand what I'm saying? Your Heavenly Father, the first thing He's not going to do is not going to give you a sickness or this type of thing. So, there's nothing wrong with doing a sin checklist, yet at the same time, trust me, that's not His first thing. If, if you are in disobedience, if there is something He's been talking to you about and you've been walking away or not doing it, you'll know. You'll know. And then God does sometimes do that kind of stuff to get our attention. But we know what He's been doing. We know when He does it what it is. But there is still, Allison, nothing wrong with doing a sin checklist. But don't make it your first thought of, He's upset with me. Well, our mindset should be, where where are you in all of this, God? And what are you trying to show me? Or when adversity comes, it should be like, wow, what a great opportunity for His glory to show me. Yeah, what's something that I could learn? But not, how can we fix this? You know? And so here, Jesus doesn't say, um, as soon as you get some things right, this will all go away. He said, hang on. And some of you are going to die. But that's okay, because it happened to me, and I'm alive again, and so will you be. Alright? Now, look at what He says next, though, in verse 9. I would encourage you to underline it, Highlight it. He says, I know your afflictions and your poverty. Now, I want an honest answer from you. Have you ever had in your life times where you wondered if God really knew what was going on? This means yes. yes. This means no. <laughs> haven't, we all, haven't we all had times where you wonder? God, do you really know? What's, I mean, we know if you're asked a written test. You know, of course, God knows everything. He knows but don't you feel sometimes, is, is, is he paying attention? Does he know? You feel like he doesn't know. I want to show you a couple of passages that will just hopefully be an encouragement to you. Go to Psalm 56. Psalm 56, verse 8. And I want two or three different people with different translations to read this verse. Because the different translations of a certain word are kind of cool in this, in this section. So, somebody read Psalm 56, verse 8. Um... If you have an NIV, go ahead. Someone has an NIV. Read that one. Record my lament. List my tears on your scroll. Are they not on your record? All right. Read it again, Nicole. Record my lament. 
List my tears on your scroll. Are they not in your record? Alright, he says, record on my lament. List my tears on your scroll. Are they not on your record? What, what, do you, what do you hear when you read that? What's he keeping record of? Yeah. Is he keeping record of our, of our tears, right? Someone with a different one than uh, list my tears on your scroll. What does your translation say? It says record my mis- misery. Record my misery. Uh-huh. New King James says you number my wanderings. Which means it's like an action that I took. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? Oh, did you see that? Did you see that? Put my tears into your what? Your bottle. Some say cup or jar. Think about that for a minute, folks. He keeps our tears in a jar. We we have to not let the silence of God blind us to the truth of His Word. If His Word says that He knows, He cares, He'll never leave, He'll, oh, remember last week, He's ministering to His church, He's as dressed as the priest, tending the lamps. Don't let the silence of God cause you to think differently. The Scripture says He knows. He keeps a record, and He keeps your tears in a jar. That's, that's kind of cool. Let me show you another place that's even neater. Go to Acts chapter 9. It's an analogy, yet at the same time, it's a picture of, and of course, literally, he doesn't have all, you know, because let's be honest, I've cried enough that, that, you know, heaven would be falling down onto earth with how much water there is up there, but he could, just to, he, he could, let's put it this way, he could definitely have them in a jar. I lean toward David's giving a picture of the fact, though, that I know that none of these tears hit the ground without you knowing it. You understand what I'm saying? This is the picture of what he's really saying. Now, if he literally has a jar with all our tears... He, he could. He's got. Yeah, he's just simply saying, I know not a tear hits the ground without you knowing it. You count them all. Listen to Acts chapter 9, all right, verses 1 through 5. Meanwhile, Saul, this is Paul, was still breathing out murderous threats against who? The Lord's disciple, Christians, all right? He went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found anybody there who belonged to the way, again, Christians, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you? Saul asked. He said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Now, who does the Scripture say Paul was persecuting? Christians. Christians. How did Jesus respond to Paul persecuting Christians? Persecuting him. He took it personally. I want, again, meditate on the Word of God. Don't just say, oh, that's cool, and move on. Let that sink in for a minute, folks. If there's somebody out there that's out to get you, you are in Christ, and Jesus takes it personally. He went and knocked Paul off his horse and blinded him. He said, why, why are you doing this to me? I'm not doing it to you. I'm doing it to these... No, if you're doing it to them, you're doing it to me. Remember Matthew 25? Welcome, sheep. Get away, goats. Remember? It said to the, she- it said to the sheep, Welcome, because when I was hungry, 
you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. And in prison, you visited me. When you've done it to the least of these brothers of mine. It's important that you grasp that. You've done it to me. Oh, folks, let me just tell you, when you talk bad about somebody and they're in the church, keep this in mind. Well, they deserve it. No, you don't understand. When anybody goes against one of Jesus's, they're going against Him. He is that intertwined with you. Now, let's be honest. Some days we don't feel it. But don't let that supersede the truth of God's Word. The truth of God's Word is one day, and you're going to see that when we get to Pergamum, He's going to judge all the stuff that's happening. He doesn't miss a thing. Nothing's fallen by the wayside. Nothing will be forgotten. Every idle word will be, will be held accountable for. Matthew 12.36 says that. will be held accountable for every idle word. But when anybody goes against you as a child of God, they're going against Jesus. And Jesus said, why are you doing this to me? That, that's kind of an encouragement to me. So, when back in Revelation chapter uh, 2, when he says, I know of your afflictions and your poverty, yet you're rich. Don't measure things by today's standards. He said, I know what's, I know what's going on. Alright, now, then he goes and says, at the very end of this section here in Smyrna, verse 11, uh, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If he who overcomes will not be hurt at all, by the second death. We've got to take some time tonight and explain what that second death is, okay? So if you're taking any notes, let me have you write one, two, and three, okay? Alright? We're going to deal with what this second death is. Number one, I just want you to put next to number one, we're all born spiritually dead. And I'm going to show you some scriptures that deal with that. We are all, every one of us, are born already spiritually dead. We may be alive physically, but spiritually we're dead. And, and uh, go to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Somebody read verses 15, 16, and 17. Genesis 2, 15, 16, and 17. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it you shall surely die. Right. Now, at that time, Adam and Eve were alive spiritually, able to communicate with God. But he told them, the day you eat of this tree, you're going to die. Now, when it happened, did they physically die? No. But spiritually, they died, and he had to remove them from his presence. Whenever you see the word death, put in your mind the word separation. Death is a separation. Okay? And now, we are born spiritually dead, because, as we already read in 1 Corinthians 15, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. When you were born, because of the sinfulness of mankind passed on to each of us, that's why Jesus was born without human parents, if you will, because of the fact that otherwise sin would have been passed on to him and he would have already been guilty in sin, if you will. But God put him inside of Mary, alright? So he wasn't born of man in that sense, so he doesn't have sin passed on to him. He was tempted in every way such as we are, yet without sin. Each of us are born in sin. That's what the Bible teaches. We are guilty before God. We're spiritually dead. Let me show you two other places that talk about that. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Listen to what it says in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 5. It says, As for you, 
you were dead in your transgressions and your sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath, but... Because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace that you've been saved. Here in Ephesians 2, 1-5, we see that we were dead spiritually, but He made us alive spiritually. Again, what does that mean? We were separated from God because of our sin, but we've been made alive. That means we've been brought back into a relationship. Now we can have a relationship with God. He can talk to us. He can lead us. He can guide us. The Spirit can indwell us. We've been made alive. One other place is John 5.24. Someone want to read John 5.24, the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 24. Very familiar passage. When somebody starts reading it, the rest of you will probably be able to finish it. Go ahead, Beck. You got it? I think I remember it. All right. For he's passed from death to life. It talks about how we've passed from death to life. Go ahead and... Someone want to read the whole verse here? John chapter 5, verse 24. Someone want to read it for us? You see it? Whoever hears his word and believes him who sent me, you've passed. Will not be brought into judgment. You've passed. Past tense. Remember last week we were dealing with can you lose this salvation? All throughout the Scripture, if it's been given to you by God as a gift, it's yours for eternity. You've passed, past tense, from death to life. So, number one in your notes, So, and we'll get to what the second death is. Number one is simply this, we're all born spiritually dead. Okay? Now, between that birth where we're spiritually dead and when we physically die, we have an opportunity to be made spiritually alive through faith in Jesus Christ. And I pray that everybody in this room has already passed from death to life spiritually because you've been made alive through Jesus Christ. But there is a death that's coming to us, correct? It's called a physical death. And so that is the first death, all right? Even though we're born spiritually dead, that's not the first death. The first death that's coming is physical death. And so next to number two, put physical death is the first death, all right? And uh, James chapter 2, verse 26, I'll read that to you. You can write it down. You don't have to turn there because it's just one simple little verse here. But in James chapter 2, verse 26, this is what uh, the Bible says. It says, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works or deeds is dead. As James is using this illustration about the body and the spirit separating at our physical death, he's using that to illustrate that our faith, if it isn't backed up by any actions, it's not real faith. Okay, But he uses an interesting picture, he says, as the body without the spirit is dead. Why? What happens when we die? The real us gets separated from our physical bodies, goes to either be with the Lord or goes to spend eternity separated from Him, but our bodies become lifeless again. And Those of you who have ever seen me do a funeral, I like to use an illustration with a glove. And the glove will lay there lifeless, but then when you put your hand into it, it comes alive and moves around. Well, you know it's not the glove, but what's inside. And if you took your hand out, the glove will go lifeless again. And that's what happens when we die. Our bodies become lifeless again. They lay back into the casket, go back to the dust of the earth. But the real us has been separated from our bodies. That's what's going to happen when you die. You will be separated from your body. That's the Bible's description of the first death. Physical death, okay? But there is a second death that we Christians will never have to experience or worry about. And that's why here in Revelation chapter 2, he said, To him who overcomes, 
They will not be hurt at all by the second death. So, as I've told you before, we're going to interpret the book of Revelation by either using Revelation or other passages of Scripture. Actually, the book of Revelation clearly tells us what the second death is. Turn to Revelation chapter uh, 20. Alright? And in your notes where number 3 is, write the second death is to be forever separated from God's presence. It's to be forever separated from God's presence. And I'll explain some more in just a second. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 14. Someone want to read that for us? Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and the death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Alright, and then it says, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What is the second death according to Revelation chapter 20? It's the lake of fire. See, what happens is, is you're born spiritually dead, already separated from God. Okay? You can't enter into His presence. You can't have a relationship with Him. He, through His sacrifice of Jesus Christ, has provided a way for you to be forgiven and brought back. All throughout your physical life, He calls you. He draws you. His Spirit moves you to, to come. He puts people in your path to tell you the good news of salvation. He's given us His Word. He is doing everything to keep you from being separated from Him eternally. If you come to faith, you will never experience this second death, which is the lake of fire. But if you say no to His sacrifice and His offer of salvation through Jesus Christ, before you, at the time when you physically die, you will go to a place of holding, and it's a place of torment, called Hades. And at this point in the, 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 the chronology, if you will, in the timetable, which we'll get to down the road in Revelation, at this point, all the people that died who did not say yes to Jesus, who were still in their sins, are brought up out of where they're being held. They're brought back into His presence. And God on the throne judges them according to what they've done. Remember, like I told you earlier, God's keeping accurate records of what everybody does. The good news is, for those of us who have been forgiven, those have been erased for us. Thank the Lord, those have been erased. We're forgiven. Now He's only going to judge us on whether or not we've been obedient to what it is He wants us to do and be after salvation. And that will determine how much responsibility we get in the life to come. But it won't determine whether or not we get into heaven or whether or not we're going to be spanked when we get there. Okay, But these people who were disobedient by saying no to Jesus Christ, they're brought before Him, they're brought into His presence, and they're judged according to what they had done in the books. And then they look at one last book, just to double check, their name's not in the Lamb's Book of Life and they're thrown into the lake of fire. They're separated from God a second time, and that is the second death. We'll show you another place real quick. Go to Revelation chapter 20. You see here in Revelation 20? Yes, that is the final death. Revelation 20, look at verses 1 through 6. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss, and locked and sealed it over him, to keep him from deceiving the nations any more, until the thousand years were ended. 
After that he must be set free for a short time. And I saw the thrones which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus. And because of the word of God they had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Now the rest of the dead didn't come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. Here again, we see the second death has no power over us who are believers in Jesus. We're going to reign with Him. Even those who come to faith in Him during the tribulation and are killed because of it, they're going to reign with Him in the thousand years to come on the earth. And at the end of that thousand years, what I just... or AJ read to you from Revelation 20, verse 11 and following, is what's going to occur. They'll be cast into the lake of fire. There's one last place, Revelation 21. Look at verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they'll be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away he who was seated on the throne said I am making everything new then he said write this down for the wor- these words are trustworthy and true he said to me it's done I am the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end to him who is thirsty I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life he who overcomes will inherit all this and I will be his God and he will be my son but the cowardly the unbelieving the vile the murderers the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So when Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, to him who overcomes, he won't be hurt at all by the second death, what's he simply saying? You're not going to be thrown into the lake of fire. You're not going to be thrown into the lake of fire. So, we're all born spiritually dead. Separated from God. We have an opportunity between when we're born and when we die physically, which is the first death, if you will, to be reunited with God through faith in Jesus Christ, brought back into His presence. If that happens, even if you die physically, you will not experience the second death. You'll never be separated from God ever again. You won't see the lake of fire. If you die and have said no to Jesus Christ, you'll be placed, put into a place of torment, which is a place of holding until that time after the millennium or the thousand years on the earth where Jesus rules and reigns, at that time all the dead are going to come up, brought back into His presence, and they'll be separated from His presence a second time and thrown into the lake of fire. But for those of us who have said yes to Jesus, don't have to worry about that. You won't experience the lake of fire. Thoughts or comments or questions before we move on? Go ahead, Martha. What's amazing is in chapter, or in verse 8, you know, all sin, even though we're in Christ, and we could, could fall into one of these categories, even as a Christian, but we're not, not considered... No, it's right. You're talking about the, the sexually immoral, the vile, the, uh, yes. Every one of us have done those things. And that's what actually we'll come to it and we do that part of the study. I'll show you a couple places where the Bible says in Corinthians, and such, so were you. But you used to be, but it's not you anymore. And you're going to see that when we get to Pergamum in the new name. And so we're going to get to that. But yeah, that is neat. Thank God He's not holding us to the letter of the law of, did you ever do this? 
You know, I remember I was being interviewed by a church up in Chicago, and, uh, you know, uh, they said, have you ever committed adultery? And I said, probably about 20,000 times. And they were like, what? And I said, well, Jesus said, if you've ever looked lustfully at a woman, you've committed adultery. In his eyes, it's the same thing. So if you're going to go by that standard, yes, I have. Now, have I ever physically committed adultery? No. But... I was just trying to see what their reaction would be. They were like, whoa, whoa, so stop the interview right here. You know? <laughs> but at the same time, you're right. Praise God, that's not who we are anymore. Yeah. All right, now, let's go over to Pergamum. All right, let's go over to Pergamum. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write. These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there that hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He was in ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Alright, now, remember how Jesus introduced himself to the church in Smyrna? He said, I'm the first and the last, the one who was dead and is now alive. But now, in this situation, he introduces himself in a different way. He said, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. Remember John on the Isle of Patmos in Revelation 1? He turned to see whom he heard the voice. He turned around and he saw this picture of Jesus among the lampstands. And we have this picture of his hair white like wool, his eyes like fire. But what was coming out of his mouth? Double-edged sword. Now, interesting, Jesus says to this church, let me point out this aspect of who I am. I am the one with the double-edged sword. Now, what does that mean? Judgment. Judgment. The double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And I'm going to show you what I mean by that. Again, we're going to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Take a look at Revelation chapter 19. Look at verse... Someone read verse 15 for us. Someone read Revelation 19.50. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of of Almighty God. Do you see that? Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword, which he does what? He judges the nations. Go to Revelation 19. Someone else read verses 19 through 21. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse of his army. 20 and 21. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. These signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. Two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning salt, and the rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse and on the birds. Again, we see the sword coming, and the rider on the horse, by the way, is Jesus. 
And we see the sword coming out of his mouth. And is he using it to give haircuts? No, he's using it for judgment. So now we understand the tone of what's going on here. To the church in Pergamum, he says, this is coming from the one who's got the sword coming out of his mouth. So as a parent every now and then, have you ever uh, um, set up a conversation with one of your kids in such a way of saying, I'm serious. Um, This is not a time for joking. I want you to listen carefully to what I'm saying. This is the tone that Jesus has with His message to the church. He says, look, uh, I, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. And a lot of commentators believe that's referring to the, the altar to Zeus that was set up there in this city. It was an incredible thing. And I'll be honest with you, I was a little bit grieved. A lot of you may not know it. It's an, another whole thing for another time. But there is a replica built in Germany of the, the, the altar to Zeus that was here. There's a replica that actually had been built in Germany. Actually, they moved it. It's the real one. They moved it to, to a, a museum in Germany to set it up. And again, please don't take this as political. I'm just going to just shoot straight with you. But uh, Mr. Obama wanted to give his speech from that altar to Zeus there in Germany. When he gave his speech in Germany and 200,000 people showed up, you remember? But they wouldn't let him there, so he went across the street with a different thing behind him facing the altar to Zeus. And then if you go and look, and you can, it can be proven, you go and look at what he set up at, um, out in Colorado when he did his big Democratic convention, you go look, the background that is behind him is the altar to Zeus. They had the, Yes, that. with the pillars yeah. and all that stuff, it was the altar to Zeus. Yeah, I thought that was a weird setup. It's, it hasn't been Israel yet. And that's that? It's sad. But let me just say that a lot of commentators believe this, where Satan has his throne, is a reference to the fact that the altar to Zeus was there in that city. Alright? Now, at the same time, he says, you remain true to my name, you didn't renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was martyred in that city. Uh, But I have some things against you. You have some people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. And I'll look closely at what it says, and we're going to look a couple of paces where, where it's referenced. Who taught... The Israelites to entice taught Israelites uh, taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Now we're going to stop for a second here and deal with this thing about Balaam. Balaam was a prophet. Now a lot of times people say he's a prophet of God, but actually, if you do a little bit of a study, you'll realize he was kind of like an enchanter. Uh, he was a prophet for hire, almost kind of a thing. And if you look at the scriptures, and I'm not going to turn to those, in, the, in like Numbers 24, when he goes to do some of his prophecy, he goes does some kind of enchanting and stuff like that. Well, he, God still spoke to him and spoke through him. But this guy Balak realizes that this nation of Israel coming up out of Egypt is conquering everywhere it goes, and he decides the only way I can defeat them is to have a more powerful thing happen. Uh, their God must be with them. Maybe I can get this guy Balaam to curse them for me. So he offers Balaam some money, a little fee. Balaam says, no, won't come and do that. But then he sends some more people back to Balaam and offers them more money. Now Balaam all of a sudden says, well, that's interesting. Now I'm a little bit curious. Well, maybe God will let me curse just a small portion of them at all. As you go in this story, as they up the offering price, Balaam actually is going on his donkey when God said, don't go. And the donkey starts to talk to him because the donkey sees the angel of the Lord and all that. You, you hopefully know the story. But what the, the end result is simply this. Every time he would go to pro, pro, proclaim a curse on Israel, blessings would come out of his mouth. And Balak would get mad and say, what are you doing? 
I'm paying you all this money to curse them and you're blessing them. He says, I can't help it. I only can say what God tells me to say. Well, then what Balaam tells him later on is this. Look, God won't let me curse them. But you want to get them to, you want to, get them to be crippled? Do you want them to, 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 to fall apart? You get these other nations and their women to intermarry with them and get them to worship their gods. And that's what will happen. And he taught them how to compromise. And this is what's going on in this church. Now, they're having it tough there in Pergamum. There's, you know, the, 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 the many gods that were being worshipped in that city are numerous. And of course, you've got the altar to Zeus. And of course, you still got that once a year proclaiming Caesar as Lord issue going on in this city as well. And what's happened is that there were some those there in the church who were starting to say, look, you can be a Christian and do some of this stuff too. And Jesus says, that's not good. Now, for the sake of time, I want to give you some scriptures to look up on your own. If you want to look up some more of the story of, of Balaam, uh, just, just write down Numbers 31, verses 1 through 16. In that situation, right before Moses dies, uh, God has Moses put to death a bunch of Moabites because of the fact that they led Israel into sexual morality and all that kind of stuff. That's Numbers 31, verses 1 through 16. And in that time, he actually, they not only put to death Moabites, they put to death Balaam, the prophet of Beor. Also, Numbers 25, 1 through 3. Numbers 25, verses 1 through 3, just gives a specific example of what was really going on and what was happening. But again, all it was was they're saying, hey, look, you can still be a Jew and come and eat some of the meals with us as we worship these other gods and all this kind of stuff. And what I want you to hear is simply this. In the church in Pergamum, compromise was starting to be brought in. And God takes it very, very seriously. He wants to be the only one who determines what you do in your life. Don't let anybody come alongside of you and say, it's okay, you can do this too. If the Spirit of God does not say yes... Don't do it. Remember our Romans study in chapter 14? Anything not done by faith is sin. Each be fully convinced in their own mind. The Bible teaches that we need to be individually set aside for the, for, for, with our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't let compromise creep in. And, and the Lord will show you and He'll tell you what things in your life He doesn't want you doing. Well, everybody's doing that. It's okay. I remember one time when my wife and I were uh, in New Orleans. We were on staff at a church. And one Sunday night... The, um, the associate pastors, it was a big church, there's like eight pastors on staff, a bunch of the associate pastors decided to go over one associate pastor's house to just, you know, watch a movie and just hang out and that kind of stuff. And the kids were all playing in the in back room, you know, they're all young and playing together, and I'm not going to tell you what movie it was, you know, everybody thought it was harmless. But the F word started flying in this movie to the point that my wife and I got very uncomfortable, and we didn't stand up and say, guys, you shouldn't be watching this kind of a thing. We just excused ourselves, act like we had to go to the bathroom, but just happened to stay down the hall and played in the back room with the kids. Well, pretty soon, one or two people start coming down the hall, and they say, well, what's going on? How come you haven't come back? And we said, look, you're welcome to do that. Just for us, we're just not really comfortable watching a movie with the F word flying that much. It's just, I don't want to do it. And they said, well, you're judging us because we want to watch it. I didn't say anything to you. And honestly, they got so offended by us saying we didn't want to do it that the movie stopped and everybody went home. It ruined the night. But it was just we, in our relationship, felt like God said, that's not what I have for you. We didn't say they were wrong. We didn't think bad of them. Look, but in our walk. So there are going to be some things that you need to be listening to the Lord. Don't let compromise creep in. You notice here... All Jesus says is the teaching of Balaam. Whether it was sexual immorality that was going on in that church or those types of things, I don't know. 
But he's just simply saying, don't... you got some people there that are okay with the attitude that Balaam had. You can kind of do both. Be real careful and make sure the Lord is telling you what you can and can't do. Go ahead. I have a question. If this was truly his church and they were truly believers, we're not subject to his judgment. Is it rebuke rather than judgment? Say, well, I missed the question. Go ahead. If they're really believers... And it's his church. Mm-hmm. We don't have the judgment of God upon us. So is it rebuke a better church? Well, okay, well, no. Who, who's he talking to? He's talking to the church in Pergamum. Does that mean that everybody in the church in Pergamum is a believer? Everybody in the church in the U.S. No, no, no. Okay, the, the biblical definition of church are those called out ones. But let's just take whatever church you go to. Does everybody that's a member of that church, are they a believer? No. No. So if there's a message to your church, he'll be speaking to the believers, he'll be speaking to the non-believers, he'll be speaking to people that think they're believers. And so in this message to the church there, that's why when he gets to the message of the church of Laodicea, and he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. There are those in there who don't know him. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You know full well that's not what he's saying to a believer. But that's what I want you to see. So when these messages to the churches, he'll say you have some there that hold to this kind of a teaching. Now, at the same time, let me I'm glad you brought that up. That's a really good question. Put a bookmark here. Go to first Peter chapter one, verse seventeen. First Peter one verse sorry, chapter four, verse seventeen. First Peter chapter four, verse seventeen. I'm going to let you read this one to us. Go ahead, Allison, read it to us. When the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So, is there judgment for us? There is judgment for us. There's not condemnation. There's not separation from Him for eternity. But um, if, let's just say, for example, that you're running around on your husband, Okay. And God says that's wrong. Has He made a judgment about you? Yes. And it's judgment. He's made a judgment, and He comes to you in love and says, this is wrong. needs to stop. So, when we hear judgment, don't hear condemnation. condemnation. It's rebuke. It's rebuke. But it is a judgment. It's a judgment of the behavior. It's a judgment of the behavior, not the person. Yes. But at the same time, also, in the church, there will be believers and non-believers. And keep that in mind as we look at as you'll see it become more clear. But yes, the Bible says he's going to judge his people first. Judgment begins with the household of faith or the family of God. And then if he's going to judge us, how, how, how tough will it be for those who aren't his? All right. The second thing on the Nicolaitans, let me just tell you real quickly that there's great debate as to what this really means. There are two main options. Whenever you see, we saw last time in Ephesus, there are those who, uh, the, the people at the church in Ephesus hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which Jesus also hated. But here in this church, you've got those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. There's two options to what this means. We don't fully know. One is, there are those who think that back in Acts chapter 6, when they chose seven men full of spirit and wisdom to become what we call the first deacons, one of them was called Nicholas. There's some church history that says that this guy Nicholas actually became uh, a rebel, if you will, in the church, and started teaching people that it was okay to sexually sin because you're in Christ, you're forgiven. Because of the truth of you can't lose your salvation, he was teaching people that you can use this freedom and you can do whatever you want. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but that's what some people teach, that the Nicolaitans were these people that followed this kind of a thing led by this guy Nicholas. 
There's other another option, and I lean toward this one a little bit as well. I don't know which it is, but the Greek breakdown of the word Nicolaitans is made up of two words. Nikao, which means power, control, or to conquer, and laos, which means the people. There's always been in the church, and always will be, this sect of people who try to set up hierarchy to get control over other people in the church. It's everywhere, yes, that's true. And and it could just simply be the Nicolaitans are those who try to have control over others in the church. Either way, the church in Ephesus didn't like it, didn't allow it. The church in Pergamum had people that were holding to it. So what's happened now all of a sudden? Church in Ephesus, they're doing all the great stuff. They've left their first love. They're doing out of duty, not out of a love relationship. Smarter church, you're doing great, but you know what? You're going to have it rough and just hang on. I died. I rose from the dead. Same thing's going to happen to you. You'll be all right. Church in Pergamum, you, 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 you've been true to my name, yet at the same time, you're letting compromise creep into the church. And you can see this downward decline starting to happen. And this can happen to each of us individually. It can happen in our churches. It could happen two or three different times in the life of our churches, whatever. But I just understand, here in this church in Pergamum, compromise has begun to creep in. The world and all the stuff was going on in that big city, people started to say, it's okay, we can do both. That's a dangerous thing. So watch out for that. Now we'll wrap up with just the the, the message at the very end here. He says, he overcomes... um, I'll give some of the hidden manna. I'll also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Alright? In this situation, the hidden manna simply represents promised spiritual daily food. I guess the best. Remember the member in the wilderness, they had the manna. God provided the manna for them, and it was only enough for each day, and it was a physical food to, to sustain them. Here, the Spirit is saying to the churches, to the you who have overcome, I'm going to give you hidden manna. I've got daily sustenance for you spiritually that is available to you. Other people may not see it. They may not understand it. I think back to John chapter 4 where the disciples had gone into town and uh, they buy some food and Jesus talks to the woman at the well and they come back from buying food and He's talking to the woman and they say, Jesus, eat something. And He says, I have food that you know nothing about. Remember that? I have food you know nothing about. And they think, well, did someone else feed him? He hadn't eaten anything physically, but he wasn't hungry because the Spirit of God was sustaining him. Now, I'm going to tell you, God can do that and still does that. Think about the fact that God took Moses up onto the mountain and for 40 days and 40 nights, he didn't eat or drink. Jesus went 40 days and 40 nights uh, in the wilderness. How did he survive? Physically, that's not possible, but God, who created our bodies, can supersede those laws, and He can take care of us. And He just simply says to those of us who are His, if you'll let me, if you'll know it's there, i got what you need for today that'll get you through. It's here. It's available. i got hidden manna for those who are mine. So again, it's there. It's yours. People may not even... How, how does He make it? How does she get through this? We have food you don't know of. We've got hidden manna. Second thing he says is I got a white stone. The white stone represents acquittal. Uh, there's a lot of options as to what this might be, but the one I like the best of all of them, and I'm just going to throw it out to you, is this: is back in that day when they would have courts or, or make a ruling, um, all the people on the jury, if you will, had two stones. They had a, a, a white stone and they had a black stone. And when it was time to vote, they would just pull out one of the stones. If you were guilty, they threw the 
black stone in. If you were innocent, they threw the white stone in. So this is how they made their votes. Didn't know who was who. But as it passed, everybody just threw their stone in. And if you had white stones, you're innocent. If it was black stones, you were guilty. And here Jesus is simply saying, for him, whoever comes, you're not guilty. I'm going to give you a white stone. You're not guilty. But then there's a cool thing. What else happens with that stone? With a new name written on it. Now, I want you to hear what I said here. This new name parallels Jesus's change, how Jesus changed people's names when He did a work in their lives. I'm going to say it again. This new name parallels how Jesus changed people's names when He did a work in their lives. Abraham, Abram became Abraham. Sarai became Sarah. Jacob became Israel. Simon became Peter. Saul became Paul. And whenever God did a work in someone's life and they allowed Him to do work in their life, He gave them a new name representing what He was going to do in their life and who they were going to become. When you got saved, I believe the Bible teaches He's given you a new name. Not only to you, the Bible says, and one day I'll find out what my actual name is and what it means, but what I I do know about this is it doesn't really matter what the actual name is as much as this. When God called Jim Johnson, He saw what He was going to make in and through Jim Johnson and that's what he's working on, and that's what he's trying to do in my life and what he's trying to do in yours. You're not the same person anymore. You are not. Now, interestingly enough, after Jesus changed Simon's name to Peter, if you look at the Scriptures, afterwards, he calls him Simon a couple of times. Have you ever noticed that? Why? Because he's still a work in progress, and some days he acted like the old guy. You know, let's say my new name is uh, Duke because I'd love to be like Duke. All right, but uh, um, uh, but but some days he might not call me Duke; he might call me Jim. Do you understand what I'm saying? And and so I want to just challenge you: don't worry about what's my name. Who cares about that? Know this: he's given you a new name, and he's got a plan for your life, and he's working to make you become what it is he wants you to be. And you have daily food. You are guiltless. You are innocent. And he's got a plan for your life. Don't let him call you by your own name too much next week, alright? Just let him do what he wants to do in your life and what's coming, alright? I'm going to open it up for discussion questions before we wrap up. But that's where we're going to stop. We'll pick up on the second week of August uh, in the church at Thyatira. Any thoughts, comments, questions? Yes. I mean, it is all finished. The perfection has been accomplished. And, and, and I love what you just brought out because I preached about this at Central at Men in Motion today and really focused on Jesus tending the lampstands. Really, that's what all we stayed on and how he was dressed as a priest and he was tending the lampstands. He said he finished what he started. He's tending the lampstands. He's the one who said he would build his church. He's the one who's going to conform you to the image of his son. He's doing the work. Our job is to let him. Stop fighting it. Stop thinking he needs your help. And rest in the fact that he's going to get you where he wants you to be. Those of you, again, I don't think it's any accident that God gives us children. Okay? There's lots of reasons, but one of them is to show us, look, when they're little, you got all these plans and goals and dreams and all this stuff, but you, you don't start making those changes in the first thing. Man, you're happy when they're little, just sit there and say, gaga, goo goo, and just who cares, you know? In time, you'll work on them. But you don't talk to your four-year-old about, about birth. 
You know, and, and, and your little four-year-old daughter, you're going to talk to her about childbirth? No. Down the road, we'll get to that. Right now, let's just work on tying your shoes or whatever it is. And in time, you'll move them along. Your Heavenly Father does the same thing with you. The Heavenly Father does the same thing with you. Do you ever realize that you're still a child in His eyes? But just because you're all grown up and got gray hair and you have to loosen your belt a couple of notches doesn't mean that, that you're not a child still in the eyes of God. So let Him finish what He started. You know how much fun it would be to go to church if everybody realized that not only am I not a complete work... I'm still a work in progress, right? You are too, right? Wouldn't it be neat if we treated everybody else like they were still a work in progress? Have you ever realized how we know God's still working on us, but we get upset when someone acts like He wasn't done with them? We expect Him to be done. We expect them, Him to be done with you. I mean, I can't believe Ken did that. I mean, come on. How long has Ben Ken been a Christian? He should know better by now. Of course, we give ourselves forgiveness and grace. So I'm just going to let what Allison just wrapped us up with here tonight sink in. He's going to finish what he started. He'll get you there. Don't sit around saying, what now, what now, what do you want me to do? Go play. Remember we looked last week? Come in and out. Find pasture. Rest in the fact that God's going to get it done. And when He speaks, obey. Until then, relax. There's good news. Chill out. There's good news. Oh, and if we really grasp that, man, we'd be a lot more fun to be around, wouldn't we? Let me pray for us. Father, again, thank You for this chance to open Your Word. And we thank You for this study. Lord, we thank You for the fact that even though I've been teaching the book of Revelation for a long time, this is fresh and new. You're showing me stuff I've never seen before. Lord, I thank You for the fact. Lord, I thank You that You're speaking to my heart. Lord, I pray that what You're doing and what You're showing us in this study will be seen by the people around us just simply in the fact that as this world continues to get crazier, we become more relaxed and at peace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.